0: Good evening. Chancellor Perlman, thank you for uh, your introduction and also for your continued leadership of a distinguished and important institution for our country that has in many ways uh, been a leader in focusing on international relations, the relevancy, the importance of those relationships as we have entered a dynamic, uh, uncertain, dangerous, complicated new century. Uh, but a new century that offers astounding historic opportunities, uh, maybe more opportunities than any new century has ever, ever offered mankind. I wish to also thank. Uh, this institution, the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, certainly the Ian e. Thompson Forum, give us an opportunity to exchange some views tonight about uh, this critically important issue. The Cooper Fund uh, and uh, our friends, Dr. and Mrs. Chuck Wilson, for their continued leadership in community developments and helping make Nebraska a better state. Uh, I uh, certainly would also uh, begin my remarks this evening uh, with um, a note of congratulation to the Cornhuskers. Um, the ambassador, uh, if he does well tonight, uh, will be treated to a tour of Memorial Stadium. <laughs> if he does exceptionally well, he'll get to see Martinez's locker Uh, that was incentive enough to get uh, the ambassador to agree to come to uh, Nebraska. I want to thank my friend, Ambassador Jang, uh, for taking two days of his time to come to Nebraska, uh, and also his wife, Madam Chen, who uh, is in the uh, audience. Uh, so to each of you, uh, thank you for uh, being with us tonight. This morning's headline in the New York Times read, China challenges role of U.S. on eve of economic meeting. The headline in the Washington Post yesterday read, Disputes Disappointment Strain U.S. Relations with China. Two weeks ago, The Economist magazine highlighted a cover story on China. The title of that economist cover story was The Next Emperor, and it was about the next leader of China. And these are but two uh, examples of the concentration of emphasis, of focus, of awareness and importance uh, on this very, very critical, probably the most critical relationship for the 21st century, the relationship between the United States and China. This is a relationship that must be right. It must be right for not just the two countries and their people, but for the world. This weekend in South Korea, the G20 meets. Uh, Both of uh, the presidents representing China and the United States will be there. Much of that discussion will center around uh, the issues that are being played out daily in newspapers and magazines around the world, uh, currency valuations, uh, trade and other issues, which we will examine tonight uh, in some detail. And I think most of you know that Chinese President Hu will visit the United States in January uh, tonight. The Ambassador and I were asked in our remarks and probably more importantly in the exchange with you uh, to focus uh, on expectations of Nebraskans, Americans uh, in this relationship. Should there be expectations? If so, what kind of expectations should there be? What is possible? Has globalization uh, really enhanced our lives or has globalization made our lives more complicated, more dangerous. I uh, have always believed, and I thought this in the Senate when I had uh, many opportunities to visit China and had my first opportunity to visit China when I was in the private sector uh, as a businessman, uh, arriving in China on January 1st of 1984 that as you examine this great country and the consequences uh, of our relationship uh, with this country, uh, yes expectations are important and the realities of those expectations must anchor uh, whatever we think through about this relationship, Uh, but to try and isolate a state Nebraska, whatever state, on a basis of our citizens' expectations uh, for our relationship with China, it really is incomplete. Uh, We we can't isolate a state or an industry or a region uh, because we uh, are living now in a totally interconnected world. So it isn't just Nebraskans, but it's Americans and it's other and all citizens of the world that are and will continue to be affected by this uh, relationship. There is something about the word China that evokes strong feelings among Americans. We respect the ancient culture and philosophy that underpins the Chinese civilization, and we respond positively to the Chinese people themselves on a personal level. Yet many Americans also instinctively fear and distrust this distant, large, different, and enormously populous nation that is once again rising to a prominent role in the world. By virtue of its size and economic strength, it will most likely be alongside America the major player in the world in this century. There is no strategic relationship more important, more important to the world or more important to the United States. In the relationship with China. At the same time, there are a few more open to contention and discord as we see both cooperation and competition in our relationship. And that cooperation and competition increases daily. Human rights, intellectual property rights, balance of trade, currency valuations, Taiwan, and other important differences are issues that divide us. But just as we have these divisive issues, we have mutual common interests issues where we are working together and will continue to work together, like the North Korean threat, Iran, terrorism, regional stability, environmental concerns and others. However, as I noted earlier, we must be realistic and very clear-headed in our approach to these issues, and we must remain balanced and insightful. History has shown that the way to encourage more open societies, human rights, and democratic development is through engagement, trade, communication, educational exchanges, and direct contact among people. As Richard Nixon recommended over 40 years ago in a Foreign Affairs magazine article, quote, for the long run, it means pulling China back into the world community, but as a great and progressing nation, not as the epicenter of world revolution. End of quote. This has been the policy of every American president since Nixon a constructive bilateral relationship with China that is one of the most important steps America can take toward building a world more aligned with our own interests and our own leadership and our own prosperity. We often think of America as a nation anchored by a strong middle class, and it is. But consider this fact. China currently has a middle class larger than the entire population of the United States, over 300 million people investing in their country and the world. We also need to recognize that there are still hundreds of millions of Chinese living in some degree of poverty. Still, China's direction is clearly toward further economic development and an ever larger middle class. China's rate of growth has few historical parallels. A film of the Shanghai skyline over the last few years would, more than anything, show constant change like a time lapse video of a plant going from seed to tree in a matter of minutes. Before the middle of this century, if it continues growing at its current rate, China's economy may be larger than America's economy. Chinese foreign policy, once driven by ideology, is now more concerned with quality of life for its people, stability, regional stability, jobs, energy resources, and development of its economy. This policy has had dramatic effects beyond commerce, both inside China and around the world. For instance, this year China hosted the 2010 World Expo and hosted the 2008 Summer Olympics. And in 2000, China established the China-Africa Cooperation Forum to help Beijing pursue energy-related contracts develop trade and investment agreements, expand scientific and technical cooperation, and support greater tourism between China and Africa. Much is made of the artificial exchange rate between the Chinese and American currencies. This is a legitimate issue, and it will be an issue of supreme importance and a major topic of this week's G20 meeting in South Korea. The argument goes that cheap currency in China represents a backdoor subsidy to the Chinese economy that gives it an unfair export advantage while destroying American jobs. As is often the case with simplistic economic arguments, especially those bolstered by nationalism. Nationalism on both sides. This does not represent the whole truth which is far more complex and often very different from what it appears to be at first glance. This is also the argument being made by China and European nations and other nations against the recent U.S. monetary decision to infuse six hundred billion dollars of new money in the U.S. economy. Aren't we doing the same thing? people ask. Isn't it the same? If America stopped buying from China, we would still be faced with the same dynamic. A world economy driven by a world market producing cheap quality products made in not just China, but many countries. All seven billion people in the face of the earth today live in an interconnected global community, underpinned by an interconnected global economy. We are living in a world market. All citizens of the world are part of one world market. The components of many products come from many places around the world for all products, but are assembled in one location. For example, much of the clothing that Americans buy that bears a made-in-China label is made with thread from Vietnam, silk from Thailand, and cotton from India, but assembled in China. You might have as many as six or seven items from six or seven different countries woven into this same Chinese product. We cannot control the global marketplace. The market is more powerful than any individual, any government, any company, or any country. The answer to the challenge of Chinese made products is for America to continue to invest in the productive technologies that advanced societies are capable of generating and financing, and that an educated, skilled, and trained labor force is capable of manning. This is called being competitive on 21st century terms. The law of comparative advantage always dominates and always wins. The China-United States economic relationship is critically important to our domestic economy. We understand that. So we examine another facet of this relationship. Today, China holds hundreds of billions of dollars in U.S. Treasury securities. The Chinese have bet on the American economy and the strength of the dollar. In other words, the Chinese have been helping to finance our debt and prop up our currency. Current total U.S. debt held by the public today is over nine trillion dollars. Of this amount, over half is held by foreign investors. The People's Republic of China and Japan have the largest percentage of ownership of America's debt. China is a world power. It will continue to be an even greater world power. We cannot control China, nor should we try. Neither should we be shocked when the Chinese decide to spend more on defense. All great powers in history have always sought to enhance and modernize their military and strengthen their security. Do we need to be mindful of that? Of course we do. Of course we do. Do we need to think tactically and strategically about our, how we might respond to that military buildup? How it affects, might affect America's position in the world? How it might affect sea lanes in the world? The independence of nations in the world? Again, of course. But we also need to be thoughtful, wise and judicious as we analyze our security interests, as well as other countries' security interests. America's commitment to its security in dollars represents a larger expenditure for defense spending than all of the nations of the world combined. Over $700 billion per year, including monies for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That represents more than half of our total federal budget discretionary spending. And that does not include security spending for the Homeland Security Department nor our intelligence agencies. But we are far more likely to be able to live peacefully with China and influence China and affect the direction that China takes over the next few years if we are bound to China by strong economic ties and mutual geopolitical and security interests as an ally and competitor rather than one that we face as an adversary and enemy. As we project America's interests in this new world, as we construct a new world order that will include China, must include China, as it must include India and Brazil, nations of Southeast Asia, Turkey, South Korea, We must recognize the interests of these countries and forge relationships, build the foundation of those relationships on the common interests, not the differences, but the common interests. Our sovereign interests, like all sovereign nations have sovereign interests, are not need not be exclusive to the sovereign interests of other nations. We are seeing a new geopolitical world economic center of gravity develop today this will require an accommodation of different interests engagement is not appeasement engagement will be required for our own future and for our own prosperity and for our role in the world Realignments of relationships are taking place today. Nations and societies and governments are maturing. We should embrace this. We should be part of this. We should lead this. This represents tremendous advantages for America. Stability in the world, security in the world, new marketing opportunities for Nebraska products, for American products, for American presence. The world is also witnessing the greatest diffusion of power the world has ever seen. Much has been written, much is being written, much will be written, about the power shifting in the world from west to east. A certain amount of that is happening. Where it plays out over the next 50 years, the next 100 years, I am not equipped to know. But 10 years into this century, and after the jarring gong of September 11, 2001, and after the implosion of the Soviet Union, which set in motion a new universe of new satellites, of freedoms, of rights, of possibilities, of opportunities. We are yet to understand and know where all of that goes. But I am of a very clear opinion that the concentration on common interests is as much the answer for our future relationship as any one thing regional stability, regional relationships uh, are now central not just to economic interest but to security interest uh, in the world. And I need not go much beyond the Middle East or Central Asia uh, today. Does anyone really believe that if we have any hope to bring the Israeli-Palestinian issue to some high ground to hopefully make progress on helping settle that issue, that it does not include or will not affect Iran, all the countries of the Middle East, all the countries of Central Asia. And when you further examine examine the regional dynamics of this, one corner of the world where three nuclear powers border and touch each other, a very combustible corner of the world where China and India and Pakistan come together. And not too far from that corner is a raging war that America is in the middle of. That, in fact, has brought into it all nations of that area, north of Afghanistan, Central Asia, to its east, Pakistan, India, its northeast, China, its western border, Iran. This is a very sharp reminder of the kind of world that we live in, the kind of hair-trigger world that we live in, why wise, careful, judicious approaches, to all of our policies and relationships uh, are are now critically essential to our future. This relationship, the American-Chinese relationship, will be as much the hinge relationship for the 21st century as there has ever been, I believe, in in the history uh, of mankind. Because there are now no margins of air left in the world, not just in the explosiveness of weapons of mass destruction, But again, we need not examine much beyond what's happened in the world the last three years. A global financial crisis. A global financial crisis. That the world has not seen anything like this since the Great Depression. There was not a corner of the world untouched by what started in this country about four years ago there is an ample assignment of responsibility and blame to go around. We have an opportunity to get it right. The relationship between the US and China is not distant from that overall crisis. In fact, it is central to it. Well, I uh, am grateful uh, for an opportunity to share some of my thoughts on this issue. Uh, I know, as you, Look forward to hearing the ambassador's thoughts, and then we will engage uh, uh, in a more detailed analysis. But as I leave the the podium, I want to also uh, thank all of you and thank this state uh, for the privilege that you gave me to serve this state for the last 12 years. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, First of all, I would like to thank uh, Chancellor Perlman for inviting me and for uh, his very kind uh, introduction just now. Well, uh, it is a great privilege to uh, join Senator Hagel uh, in attending tonight's uh, E.N. Thompson Forum on World Series. Actually, this is my first time in the state of Nebraska. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I understand that the uh, University of Nebraska-Lincoln is very special. It is Nebraska's biggest public university, as well as an educational, academic, and cultural center. I also understand that your football team, the Horn Huskers, is also very special. You have won five national championships. I was told by the governor whom I met this afternoon that the Cornhuskers is doing extremely well at the Big 12. So I am confident that the football team, can win back the national championship before very long. (laughs) So good luck to you. (laughs) Well, as tonight's theme is uh, globalization's promise, I would like to speak first on globalization and China, and then on China-US relations in the era of globalization. Since the outbreak of the international financial crisis in 2008, many people have started to question the globalization process. Will the trend of globalization be reversed? How to view the impact of globalization? And how to deal with the various issues arising from globalization? In spite of the heavy blow to the world economy, by the international financial crisis, the main trend of economic globalization has not changed. This is because the three major drivers of globalization remain effective, namely scientific and technological advances, cross-border trade and investment, and international industrial restructuring. New technologies with environmental protection, new energy, low-carbon economy, and technology at the core will continue to drive the new round of globalization. In responding to the international financial crisis, there has been more profound industrial restructuring and the relocation of resources worldwide. The effects of economic globalization is a double edged sword have become more obvious. On the one hand, the worldwide flow and distribution of elements of production has undoubtedly lowered costs, increased efficiency, and further improved overall productivity. But on the other hand, it has aggravated world economic imbalance and widened the gap between different economies. There is a growing public discontent and suspicion in many countries, and the mood for trade investment protection is on the rise. The risks risks of excessive financial globalization have also been recognized. Global efforts are needed to address the challenges of globalization. It is necessary to make globalization more universally beneficial coordinated and balanced. Global governance with responding rules, regulations and mechanisms that can rise to global challenges needs to be improved. The establishment of the G20 provided a unique platform for enhanced global governance. The reforms of the IMF and of the World Bank are also necessary steps to improve international cooperation. Since the policy of reform and opening up was adopted in 1978, China has actively participated in international division of labor and cooperation, attracted foreign capital, advanced technology and management expertise, upgraded industrial structure, and improved economic patterns. China's economic development over the past 30 years and more is in essence attributable to reform and opening up. But at the same time, it has also benefited from the opportunities presented by economic globalization. While we pursue our own development in China, we are also making contributions to the growth of the world economy. The Chinese economy has increasingly become an important engine for world economic growth. It is estimated that China will account for more than 30% of world economic growth this year. In the wake of the international financial crisis, China was one of the first to recover and has played an important role in promoting an earlier world economic Recovery. As China's economy is more integrated with the world economy, it is also exposed to more risks and challenges associated with globalization. Due to the fluctuations of the international financial market, many Chinese businesses and individuals have seen the value of their assets drop significantly. The rise And the fall of international energy and food prices also directly affected the life of 1.3 billion Chinese people. Although China's GDP is one of the biggest in the world, its per capita GDP is only 3,700 US dollars, less than 10% of the per capita GDP in the United States, and ranking behind. 100 other countries. Every year, 24 million people need jobs in Chinese cities. We still face challenges as irrational economic structure, weak scientific innovation, worsening environmental and resources constraints, and even development between urban and rural areas and between different regions. And imbalanced economic and social development. These challenges are becoming more acute in the time of globalization. In China, any issue, no matter how small, will become a big one when multiplied by 1.3 billion. And any resources, no matter how abundant, will become very modest when divided by. 1.3 billion. This is China's reality. In terms of magnitude and levels of difficulties, the challenges and problems we have encountered in our development are rarely seen in history of mankind. The road is still very long for China to achieve modernization. As a developing country, China will continue to concentrate on development. China is firmly committed to the path of peaceful development and the strategy of mutually beneficial opening up. We will continue to participate actively in international cooperation and fulfill international responsibilities and obligations. In this age of globalization, the interests of China and the United States have never been so closely connected. China and the United States are now each other's second largest trading partner. China has been the fastest growing market for U.S. export. U.S. export to China has grown by 330% over the past 10 years. It grew by 33.8% in the first three quarters of this year. The United States is the number one source of foreign direct investment in China. And investment from Chinese businesses to this country has also been on the increase. Economic trade ties between China and the United States are mutually beneficial. They have brought huge tangible benefits to the United States. First, the rapid expansion of US export to China has created many job opportunities in this country. According to US Secretary of Commerce, Gary Locke, for every 1% increase in the US export to Asia, 100,000 new jobs are created. It is estimated that between 2001 and 2007, US export to China Created 2.5 million new jobs in the United States. Research by Morgan Stanley has concluded that between 4 to 8 million U.S. jobs are closely associated with China U.S. trade. Second, China's export of good quality but affordable commodities to the United States has not just promoted China's economic growth, but also met the needs of American consumers and saved them lots of money. A total of over $600 U.S. dollars have been saved in the past 10 years, according to one estimate. One study by the U.S.-China Business Council shows that trade with China has boosted economic growth and lowered inflation rate for the United States. And this means an increase of around 1,000 U.S. dollars in real disposable income per U.S. household annually. Third, investment by Chinese companies in the United States has helped to create many local jobs. Just to cite one example, when the China Ocean Shipping Company it's called Costco, started direct service to the port of Boston in 2002. It not only saved the port from being closed down, but also kept 9,000 jobs. Fourth, the China business has become the highlight of growth for many American companies. For some, the China operation has been the only business generating profits. According to Amcham China 2010 white paper on the state of American businesses in China, 71% of U.S. companies operating in China made profits in 2009, and 90% are optimistic about the prospect in the next five years. Taking General Motors, for example, It filed for bankruptcy in 2009 in the United States, but its sales in China went up by 67%, making China its second biggest overseas market. Given the fact that our business ties are growing so fast in so many areas on such a large scale, problems and frictions are hardly avoidable. What is important is to address them properly through dialogue and consultations. For some time, there are some in the United States who believe that the trade imbalance between China and the United States is caused by the undervalued exchange rate of the Chinese currency, the RMB. As a matter of fact, the root cause of the trade imbalance is structural differences in trade and investment, rather than the RMB exchange rate. It is precisely the result of international division of labor and industrial transfer in the area of globalization. China does not seek trade surplus. China has a surplus in trade of goods, but runs a deficit in trade of services. China has a surplus in trade with the United States, Europe, but runs a deficit in trade with Japan, Republic of Korea, and the ASEAN countries. The majority of China's exports to the United States are labor-intensive, low-value-added consumer goods. Many of them are no longer produced in the United States. Even if the United States does not import them from China, it will have to buy from other countries appreciation of the RMB will not solve the issue of trade imbalance for the United States, nor will it noticeably reduce the U.S. unemployment rate. Since 2005, the RMB has appreciated by 21% against the dollar, but the U.S. trade deficit continued to grow. This proves that the RMB exchange rate is not the cause of trade imbalance. Nevertheless, China will further advance the reform of its exchange rate regime, but external pressure can only be counterproductive. We stand for a comprehensive approach to ease the trade imbalance between China and the United States. Both sides will be losers should a trade war or or a currency war break out. In my view, it is of vital importance for us to cooperate in the following three areas. First, we must continue to support each other's economic restructuring. China is trying to achieve economic growth through boosting domestic demand. The next five-year plan, which is being drafted, lays emphasis on continued effort to expand domestic demand transform the mode of economic development, and embark on the path of balanced development. The size of China's domestic market is expected to surpass $2 trillion U.S. trillion this year, far more than China's total export. At the same time, the U.S. is also changing its high-spending, low-savings mode of growth. We should support the restructuring efforts of each other and explore cooperation in such areas as clean energy, energy conservation and emission reduction, environmental protection, infrastructure, and modern services industry. Second, we must increase U.S. export of high-tech products to China. China is prepared to further increase increase its import from the united states however among the high tech products that we import in 2008 only 6.9% were from the united states this is not commensurate with the standing of the united states as the leading nation in science and technology us export to china will be greatly enhanced if restrictions on high tech export to china be eased, and real efforts be made to promote free trade. Third, we must encourage Chinese businesses to invest more in the United States. Currently, many Chinese companies face obstacles and uncertainties when making investment in this country. A level playing field needs to be created. This will encourage more Chinese companies to invest in the United States, which will be conducive to job creation and the growth of the economy in general in this country. China-U.S. cooperation has assumed greater international significance. In response to the international financial crisis, China and the United States have stepped up up macroeconomic coordination, worked together together within the G20 framework, and made important contributions to economic recovery in both countries and in the world. We have also had productive consultations and cooperation on a series of regional and global issues, such as counterterrorism, nonproliferation, non-proliferation, climate change, the Korean and Iranian nuclear issues. President Hu Jintao of China and President Obama have agreed to work together to build a positive, cooperative, and comprehensive China-U.S. relationship for the 21st century. This has set the direction for our bilateral relations. The China-U.S. relationship will grow more solid and stronger as our two countries share more common strategic interests and cooperate with, with each other in more areas. Finally, I wish to say a few words on China's relations with Nebraska. In recent years, China and Nebraska have increased mutual exchanges and cooperation. The state of Nebraska and the Guizhou province of China have established sister relations. From 2000 to 2009, Nebraska's exports to China increased by 306%. In 2009, Nebraska's total export fell by 10%. But by contrast, its export to China rose by 6% to reach 211 million U.S. dollars. This fully testifies to the strength and potential of Nebraska's export to China and China has become the fourth biggest export market for Nebraska. Just as as I mentioned to you a moment ago, I had a good meeting with Governor Hanneman, and we have decided to explore all possibilities to enhance our cooperation. I believe that educational and cultural exchanges can serve as an important bridge between China and Nebraska. At present, 120,000 Chinese students are studying in the United States. There are 1,500 in Nebraska, including over 500 in UNL. Currently, there are about 20,000 American students studying in China. The U.S. government has launched a 100,000 strong initiative by which it will send 100,000 American students to China in four years. We welcome more American students, including those from UNL, to study and do research in China. I'm pleased to learn that as we speak, as I speak, President James Millikan is visiting China. This is his first trip to China, and it represents a major step to enhance exchanges and cooperation with Chinese universities. I hope that the joint PhD programs, the joint R&D projects, and the Confucius Institute that UNL has in partnership with Chinese universities will be more and more successful, thus making fresh contributions to the growth of our educational and cultural exchanges and friendship between our two countries. I thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.
0: you. Good job.
2: In the uh, tradition of the Thompson Forum, the ushers will now pass around index cards on which you are welcome to write questions for either the Senator or the Ambassador or for both of them. And if you'll send those back to the aisles, the the ushers will collect them and move them forward to the front of the stage and onwards and up to me. Uh, In the meantime, while you're beginning to put your questions together, let me go ahead and and ask uh, both of our guests about the environment. Uh, Rising industrial production in China and elsewhere of course has created enormous wealth as well as serious air pollution, water pollution, and soil pollution. In contrast to the streets that were filled with only bicycles, when I first visited China in 1986, the streets of China today are filled with cars, and we saw the results, among other times, in the intense air pollution visible at the Beijing Olympic Games in 2008. Will China build environmental regulations that are strong enough to protect its people and limit its fast-growing contribution to global warming?
1: Is this for me? I think it would start with you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, uh, this is a very good and important question. Uh, Just as I mentioned, in my remarks that as China developed, the country has been transformed to an extent that has never been seen in the history of China. Infrastructure has improved, people's living standards has improved, and about and more than 200, 200 million People have been lifted out of poverty. The average life expectancy uh, was 38 years old when the new China was founded back in 1949. But now the life expectancy is 74 years old. So things have changed a lot. But this has done, I think, uh, with some costs. We have seen problems and challenges that have never been seen before, as well like uh, irrational development, the differences between regions, differences between cities and the rural areas, the differences between economic and social development, and of course, environment is one of them. So in the next five-year plan, which I mentioned just now, there will be a major focus on expanding domestic consumption. But at the same time, there will be a focus on improving the environment, because China's rapid development has been at the cost of excessive environment and resources costs. This is not sustainable. If you want to have a sustainable development, you need to address the environmental aspects. I think the awareness of uh, uh, environment protection is very, very strong. And as uh, the country is set to pursue specific policies for protecting environment, we can achieve sustainable development in the future. Thank you.
2: Yeah. S- Senator, any thoughts on, on the environment and globalization and China's role?
0: Well, I would just add to, to what the Ambassador said. A comment that he made really, I think, is uh, uh, the centerpiece of what all developing nations uh, and developed nations uh, are dealing with in the, in the larger, broader context uh, of uh, environmental problems, issues, challenges uh, and that is w- with this astounding growth that the ambassador noted in his country and other countries. Um, uh, we have seen a complete, and not intentional, but a complete disregard uh, of the environment. Very little planning as to what we are doing to the environment. The emphasis uh, has been, and understandably so, uh, on development for jobs, quality of life for your people, and we have gotten uh, out of balance. And And I've always thought, for our country, in the legislation I introduced in, in the Congress over the years, that you cannot deal in any way, uh, make progress in, in any efficient, effective way on the environment unless you factor in, not just into the environmental equation, energy use and the economy. If you if you look at our country, Ambassador, for a moment on this issue, uh, we, we've not done particularly well. Um, and one of the reasons, in my opinion, we've not done well is because we have allowed the confrontational elements between the economic interest, development, jobs, versus the environment, uh, not blend into any kind of a balanced common interest way to approach these things. But it has been not unlike what's been reflected in American politics, especially the last six months, which mercifully ended last Tuesday. the, um, the fact, rather than trying to bring a consensus to a problem, uh, you are rewarded to keep all elements divided. And uh, until we are wise enough to bring the environmental interest into the larger context of job creation and economic development, uh, as well as energy use, th- then we will fail at really dealing with these great environmental uh, issues. Now, I would say one of the things that you did not mention on on behalf of of what you're doing is uh, you have become, your country, the leader in the wind uh, turbines uh, and development of wind uh, energy. Uh, We are doing that, Uh, but but you uh, have, interestingly enough, Uh, excelled at that very quickly. Uh, And we obviously have other alternatives, nuclear and so on, but uh, that's the only thing I would add, that I think those three E's have to be factored into any equation on legislation regulation Uh, because if you don't do that, then we will find a constant self-interest equation of the battle and the confrontation and the conflict and the division that uh, will end up um, accomplishing nothing. And it will be at the peril of our countries and the world if we don't do that.
1: And then Uh, then just add one point. I think uh, this is precisely one of the areas where China and the United States can cooperate. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, between China and the United States, we have this S&E uh, is called Strategic and Economic Dialogue Mechanism. and this mechanism, we have a special working group that has been focusing on how best we can cooperate in the area of environment and energy. And uh, our two countries have actually signed a 10-year framework to cooperate on climate change, environment, and uh, energy and there there was agreement to to set up a a clean energy center. Uh, So those are the the areas that I really see that we have great potential. And it it will be very, very important, uh, not only for China, but for the United States. And uh, I I really think that uh, we have to do more to promote uh, more cooperation. Thank you.
2: And let me ask you both next about the uh, cultural and political aspects of globalization. Globalization is is usually uh, expected to increase communication, and to encourage greater cultural openness and greater political liberty. Yet in contemporary China, this is not completely clear. One month ago, for example, the dissident writer and peaceful pro-democracy activists uh, Liao Xiaobo was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize and, and next month he is uh, expected to receive the award in Oslo, yet he remains today in a Chinese prison. Will globalization increase political freedoms in China to match the greater economic freedoms there?
1: it's Also for me. Uh, for you first. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm not gonna answer. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I must say that uh, in the laws of uh, many countries, including in this country, uh, there's a borderline between an opinion that can be characterized as freedom of speech and an opinion that can actually can be seen as a subversion of state power. Liu Xiaobo was convicted for inciting subversion of state power. Um, many of you uh, may, 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 may know this, um, many of you may not know this. What Liu Xiaobo has actually advocated was that because Hong Kong was so developed, because they had been colonized for about 100 years. If China wants to develop, it needs to be colonized for 300 years. He also advocated that because China is too big, it needs to be disintegrated with 18 countries. These are the things that he's been promoting, has been saying. Of course, according to the Chinese law, he was convicted for subversion of, of state power. And I think many countries have the same laws that actually can deal with this kind of a situation. I think the decision to award the Nobel Peace Prize to Liu Xiaobo was political and targeted against China. Uh, The Secretary General of the Nobel Peace Committee actually said this when he gave a speech in the United Kingdom. I think by, by awarding Liu Xiaobo the Nobel Peace Prize, this committee actually showed total disregard of the judicial system of China. And actually, they have imposed the political judgment of the five members of the committee on the Chinese people. Of course, this is not uh, acceptable. I also want to emphasize that along with China's economic development, political reform has also been along with economic development. We have, many of you have noticed the changes in our political system. Freedom of speech, human rights. Of course we are not very happy with some of the problems we have, but we, we believe that as China develops, we'll be able to do more to implement our political reform, but the pace and scope would have to be done in a way that we feel comfortable. This is very, very important to understand the political situation in China. Thank
2: you. Senator Hagelin, any thoughts about, uh, about the role that the United States may have in influencing China's human rights policies?
0: Um, only that uh, at first I think the ambassador's explanation was, uh, was a, a clear uh, and, and cogent explanation uh, from the perspective of the Chinese government as to answering the question. Um, you can you can agree or disagree with the answer but but nonetheless I think uh he explained it my only uh comment would be this is one in my opinion uh, one of those examples on when you look at the entire framework of human rights where uh the u s uh can play a role with working with the government of china um in judiciary systems and and, and other uh, structural systems of a government representing rights of a people. The, Chi- the, the Chinese have a constitution and um, to enforce that constitution is important as, as we try to do. We're certainly imperfect. I mean, uh, interestingly enough, I occasionally will remind people uh, uh, 90 years ago in the United States of America, probably half of this room could not vote, did not have the uh, the right to vote in America. Women did not have that right until about 90 years ago, so we had to uh, amend the Constitution uh, in the middle 60s. Uh, the Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, uh, produced uh, some cur- significant correction in our rights. What the ambassador said about Pace uh, a society and value systems and so on i think I think has to be factored in. Uh, I think most uh, Americans and and uh, I think most most people who believe that human rights are essential, especially an essential element to any society uh, the individual freedom uh, that uh, uh, we all believe in um, uh, ha- has to be there for the advancement of, of any prosperous uh, society. But at the same time, um, we, the United States, cannot impose our value system, uh, our laws, our will uh, on, uh, on any nation. Uh, but I do believe, again, that this is an area where we can uh, be of some, of some positive influence Uh, by not uh, demanding uh, uh, anything from any government. But uh, there are ways that that influence, and I noted uh, in my remarks, uh, where we need to be more effective at this kind of thing. Uh, And I would just, uh, in in this kind of thing being the structural framework of, of the rights of a citizen, of a country, of a society... Based on some of what the ambassador noted uh, as to the subversive nature and things that uh, um, the prospective uh, Nobel recipient uh, has said, I was thinking that uh, if you applied some of those standards to some of our political candidates recently, they'd be uh, in jail. But actually... uh, (laughs) Uh, we have a different system. Ours is a, a bit more tolerant, uh, ambassador. So could you
2: do that application?
0: Uh, <laughs> uh,
2: a question, a question for the ambassador um, that came from you, folks. Um, what is China's position on India becoming a permanent member of the UN Security Council?
1: That's a very good question. <laughs> Again, <laughs> I. Uh, uh, actually have come to know the quality of the audience. (laughs) Thank you. Well, uh, uh, India is a a good and friendly neighbor of of China. We've had uh, very good uh, relations. And uh, we highly uh, respect uh, India's role in international affairs. And we respect and uh, and support the aspiration of India to play an even bigger role in international affairs, including in the Security Council. Thank you.
2: And and another question uh, from... (laughs) A question from the audience for Senator Hagel. Uh, America rose to become an economic superpower on the back of our manufacturing sector. Given the labor and environmental activists in Congress and the administration, can the U.S. ever compete again with China and similar rising powers?
0: Well, I think we are competing now with China, and I think we are competing quite effectively with China. Um, after all, um, w- when you look at the, the reality of the of the facts and the numbers, um, China is, is not even in our rearview mirror when, it, when we judge a gross domestic product, as the ambassador noted those numbers. That doesn't mean that China may not overtake the United States uh, at some point uh, in the future, but 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 that's first. Uh, the numbers are the numbers. But more to the point of the future, uh, I, I noted in my remarks that... Uh, every nation is captive to a certain set of dynamics Um, now you deal with those dynamics those dynamics being demography, being geography uh, being resources, being form of government and all those factors that uh, equate to what your economy is uh, what your economy can produce and uh, what you uh, can do better and produce cheaper than anybody else. That's what I refer to as the law of comparative advantage. The United States has immense advantages in many, many areas. Um, I don't know if we would want to go back to the 50s or 60s or 70s and reopen the textile mills in South Carolina and New Hampshire uh, versus the new technologies that the United States still drives, I mean, we are uh, very much the leader, continued leader, in uh, information technology, high technology, investments, and why, why aren't we factoring in those realities and focusing on those sets of advantages that we have, uh, our geography, our demography, our educational institutions, our astounding research, and development capacity in this in this, this in this country. I mean, there are there are no other countries in the world that uh, can touch this country, the United States of America, in those areas. So why do we care if, if other countries are are doing some of these other things that w- that we used to be able to do better and cheaper? Uh, and why are we fighting those economic battles of? 1950 or 1960. Why aren't we doing and building on what we've always been very good at in America because we've had initiative, we reward initiative, uh, we reward imagination, we reward enterprise and hard work and discipline. Why aren't we factoring all those pieces into a future program uh, and, and, and not worrying about what happened? I, we still have a manufacturing base uh, in, in this country. Uh, it isn't the same world, exactly right, whether it's automobiles or the steel industry, uh, as, it, as it once was. But that is going to occur regardless. Uh, if there is one thing very certain about the world, it's dynamic. Tomorrow will not be the same as today. Our lives, I mean, unfortunately, we at some point start to gray, get gray. And at some point, the great confluence of life for each of us ends. And I'm, I'm sorry, but that's uh, the way it is. Why do we want to go back? I don't want to go back to be 18. I'd like to have that time, but I, I don't want to go back to be 18. And the fact is, I'd rather build on, hopefully, whatever values uh, that I can bring as a country, as a person, and so on, to pro- project out into the future in this new competitive uh, world. Last point I'd make, you know, we all like to kind of think, uh, no matter how old you are, I suppose at some point you you start to factor this in. I don't know if it's 55 or 60, whatever. But the, the old song about the good old days, well, I'm not sure those were exactly good old days for everybody, the 50s or the 60s or the 70s. And we are far better off as a country because we have been essentially propelled into a future, and this is how we became who we are, uh, to focus on these great advantages and strengths we have, starting with our society, with our people, with our culture, and build on those. Just as China has been building on its advantages, and it has certain advantages, the Indians have certain advantages, the Brazilians have certain advantages. that, that is the world, and, and that's not new. That's not going to change. Every nation responds in its own self-interest. There's something very stabilizing about that, uh, knowing that China is going to respond in its own self-interest. They are going to enhance their navy. Why are we shocked by that? So do we. That's our self-interest. The Indians are building up uh, a new 21st century military capacity that they've never had before. Uh, Why are we surprised by that? That's in the self-interest of of India. Uh, We we must focus on managing all of that, but at the same time, let's get our house in order. We have enough to to work on here uh, at at the same time. So I think I would just add those pieces to what the ambassador uh, has said on this one big issue.
2: Thank you. We just have time for one more question, and I want to thank all of you who sent questions down that we weren't able to get to. Uh, And this is for for both the ambassador and the senator. Um, What do you expect uh, one generation from now, when uh, in 2035, when a distinguished former Nebraska senator and a distinguished Chinese ambassador come to the podium here at the Leeds Center, what do you expect them to say about the U.S.-Chinese relationship 25 years from now?
1: (laughs) Well, I hope I can live as long as. (laughs) 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 Well, I think um, there will be more interdependence between our two great nations. As I mentioned just now, that the interconnectedness between our two countries has never been so close as it is now. This is because of many things. Economic globalization is one of the factors. And I'm sure in 25 years time, uh, we're going to have even more deeper interdependence between our two countries. And there will be uh, more people-to-people exchanges, cultural and educational exchanges. Certainly there will be more Chinese tourists to this country. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, last year, if, I, if my figure is right, uh, there were about 45 Chinese that, that have left uh, the country for, uh, as, as tourists uh, abroad. But only a very limited number have actually come to this country. And I'm, I am sure that in 25 years time, the number of Chinese tourists will be doubled, tripled, certainly will be more than uh, than the numbers we have today. So there will be a, a deeper degree of interchanges between our two countries. Of course, uh, uh, there will, I think the, the gap between the United States and China will be narrowed a little bit, but this is not the determining factor. Many people have asked me uh, if China, China's economy is, uh, is getting closer to the United States economy, or even surpasses the U.S. economy, what are you going to do? I told them that China is a country of principles. For example, we have always believed that country or countries, big or small, are equals. We should respect each other. We should treat each other as equals. We should cooperate with each other as equals. So I really think that uh, even if the, the gap of national strength between United States and China will be reduced, I think we will be working together as equal partners because this is very, very important for our next generations. Thank you.
2: Senator Hagel, 25 years from now, what do you expect them to say about
0: the, what's happened to the U.S.-Chinese relationship? Well, I fully expect the Ambassador and I to be very uh, spright and, and uh, lively and uh, <laughs> bound upon this stage. And uh, uh, maybe with a jug of champagne to uh, celebrate uh, uh, all the good fortune that our countries have brought to the world. I'd I put it this way. I, I do fully expect, believe, and I, I feel it in every fiber of my being that uh, in 25 years the Chinese-American relationship uh, will be in fact well on its way to being the hinge relationship of the 21st century that uh, will in fact uh, be responsible for a world that is more stable, more prosperous, for more people than than the world's ever known. Uh, I doubt if there will ever be a time maybe there will be, I hope, we all do, uh, when the world has no problems. I I, I don't think that will be within my lifetime. But I think uh, as you analyze this relationship over the next 25 years, um, it will be one that will produce a better world, a fairer world, a safer world. Thank Thank you.